Hopefully you have your Bible with you. If you do, we're going to be in Ephesians 6, 17, but first we're going to turn to John chapter 3, the Gospel of John. So the New Testament goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. John 3. I'm going to start in verse 22 of John 3, and I'm also going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. John 3, verse 22 says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and, he, and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever do not, does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 3, Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This past week, I had the privilege of going to a pastor's conference just south of Cleveland. Uh, some other men in the church uh, joined me. and We had a good time together. But one of the things that I was reminded of that I heard, I don't know if I'd ever heard it put this way. But it was one of the tasks of a preacher, the task that I now have this morning in preaching to you. I'm reminded, and I don't think I need to remind you, I'm sure you know this very well, but I'm no apostle. I'm really no one of any special renown at all. I don't say that to be humble or anything. I just say because it it's, it's true. I think sometimes we try to elevate ourselves, uh, but I'm no one special. I'm sure there's things in my life that I could boast about, just like there's things in your life that you could boast about. But this, this week, Tony Morita was at our conference, and he said something that was very striking to me, and it reminded me of the task 
that lays before me this morning and that you are a part of as well. And he said every time that a pastor gets up to preach, what he is doing, what his job is, is very similar to what the father of the bride does at a wedding. So what the father of the bride does at a wedding really isn't nothing. They sit back and don't do anything until it's time for the bride to walk down the aisle. And then dad has the privilege of walking his daughter down the aisle for what? To go to the groom. To see the groom. And then the dad disappears when they do what they're supposed to, at least in a wedding. Sometimes they just stand there and you got to remind them, it's time for you to leave. <laughs> But that really is the task of the, of the father, right? To walk the bride down the aisle. Why? To present her to the groom. To say, here is your wife. It's my same task this morning. To walk all of you as the bride of Christ down the aisle to see your groom, Jesus. Again, this isn't my original thought. This is Tony Marita's thought. But it was a beautiful thing, I thought saying that as a pastor, you need to then disappear. And so that's our prayer this morning. I hope, I hope that's your prayer for me, is that Tim would be able to share the truth of God's word this morning so that you, maybe for the first time, can meet your groom. Or, what's actually the case probably of many of us, maybe this morning for the thousandth time, you can come face to face with your groom again, Jesus Christ. And be reminded of the love that you have for him. And be reminded about the love that he has for you. So I hope that we do that this morning. In this passage that we're looking at today in Ephesians chapter 6, verse, just the first part of verse 17, really does focus on that. As we gather together this morning, our, our job and our duty is to worship Jesus. To worship him for what he has done. And it's important for us to gather together on Sunday mornings and worship because the fact is, is when you walk out of these doors for the rest of the week, you are going to be bombarded with reasons why not to worship Jesus. That's what you're going to be bombarded with. And it's good for us to gather together to be reminded again of who we are and why we are trying to live the way God has called us to live. Because if you're like me, we forget about it. It's so easy to forget about it with all the chaos and the things happening in this world. And this morning in our passage, it's nothing you probably haven't heard before. We're in the armor of God. We've been talking about the armor of God. And if you look at Ephesians 6, verse 17, the very first part, it says, and take the helmet of salvation. And so we've worked our way through quite a few pieces of armor. All right, we've talked about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for your feet that are the gospel of peace. Last week was the shield of faith. And now today, the helmet of salvation is what Paul talks about. And so I want to do our best to talk about the helmet of salvation and what that means for us. First and foremost, though, we, I guess we could talk about a helmet a little bit. I saw that uh, we, have, we have a couple ladies in our church who make sheets for the kids every week. I don't know if you get them, if you have kids in here, but they are at the welcome centers. And it always goes in line with the sermon and this week on the front of the sheet of paper is a Roman helmet. And maybe you've seen a Roman helmet before. You know, it's, it's very beautiful. A lot of times it'll have feathers that run on the top uh, in one way or the other. This is one of the tasks actually of a, of a soldier's helmet was decoration. 
Sometimes helmets were designed in this way because it was helpful on the battlefield. Uh, depending on how they were decorated would determine who that person was and who I'm following. And so it was, it was important to be able to see. You can imagine being in a battle. I'm sure you've seen movies or, or documentaries or something like that. Being in those kind of battles, how chaotic it must have been. I see in the movies, sometimes you'll see the general all of a sudden yell, and I'm like, well, that's good for the four people around you who heard you. What about the thousands of others who are out there fighting? They don't know to fall back or whatever the case is. But these helmets would help with that. They could see the people who are in charge, and so they would be designed in this way. But also, we know that a, a helmet is for safety. I would say, actually, today maybe a little too much of that <laughs> at times with the helmet stuff. But a helmet, why do we wear a helmet? Well, we wear it for safety. A soldier would wear a helmet for safety. The main purpose of it was to protect the head of the soldier, which is a vital piece of the soldier, their head. And so this helmet would need to be strong. It would need to be able to withstand shots from an arrow or a blow from a sword or some other kind of weapon that may strike them. They would want a helmet that would be able to deter that and to save them from that. And so when they had their helmet on, a soldier would have a better confidence than they would without their helmet. Because wearing a helmet gives you that sort of, of confidence because of the pr protection that it provides. Even today, if I go to ride a four-wheeler or something, and if I put a big old helmet on, you almost feel invisible. Like, go ahead, throw it at me. Hit me with the baseball. It ain't going to hurt. Whack me right in the head. Go ahead. And it's kind of too much confidence at times. But it gives you that confidence that I can go out there and I can, be, I can be comfortable. I have this level of protection that I don't fear injury as if I didn't have this helmet on. And so there's a great amount of protection with that. And it's this that I think Paul is talking about specifically, the confidence aspect, when he's talking about the helmet of salvation. And so the question that we're going to ask, because we've been doing this as we've been going through this section together, like what is the gospel, uh, what, what is righteousness, Today is, what is salvation? What is salvation? And I want to turn your attention to Acts chapter 3. So go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 3. And we're going to actually read quite a bit of, of, of Scripture uh, to look at this story that is laid out for us, that Luke lays out for us in Acts 3 all the way through Acts, Acts 4, uh, part of Act 4, to ask, answer this question, what, what is salvation? Last week was the gospel, and yes, it's going to tie in Quite well, hopefully. So Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Let me pause there a second. You think about this man's life. I hope you recognize the name Beautiful Gate. We talked about this earlier around Easter. Remember Jesus riding into town during the triumphal entry and he would enter the Eastern Gate and also the Beautiful Gate as he was going to the temple. This is the gate that this man's friends or family, I'm not sure who it was, but his friends or his family would carry him to this gate because a lot of people would be going by every day. And this was the only way this man could survive. It was the only way that he could find any source of life was to sit at that gate and hope beyond hope that somebody 
would give him something, whether it be food, whether it be money, whatever it might be. And that was this man's life. You might think you have a difficult life. This man had a difficult life. Because it says from birth, he was this way. So he was born this way. He was born lame. He was born unable to help himself in any sort of way. And so he would even have to rely on people to carry him to the place to where then he would beg. And he would beg for anything. And so it says in verse 3, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. You've been there before. If you drive in Toledo, at just about every corner, there's somebody there asking for alms. It happens all over the place. We know those spots. You know those driveways to avoid. It's like, oh, I could go to that light, but there's always somebody standing there. I'm going to go out of my way and go this way so I don't have to have the guilt look. You know it. I know it. Now, granted, I don't know if those people in Toledo are in a similar situation to this guy. But that's what this guy's doing. And Peter and John are going into the temple. In order to get to the temple, they have to walk through the beautiful gate. And so they walk to the beautiful gate. And they see this man. And this man starts to ask them for help. And so verse 4 says, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, this has to be a good thought for this guy. According to this passage, he's not even looking at them when he's talking to them. He's just asking. He's just begging. They happen to be walking by. Peter says, hey, look at me. And so put yourself in this guy's shoes. What is he thinking? About to get something. He's going to give me some money. He's going to give me something to eat. Something is about to come my way, this day is not going to be wasted. Because I'm sure there's been many times he's sat at the gate and nothing comes his way. Nothing at all. But on this day, it looks like something might be coming his way. And so verse 5 says, And he affixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Well, come on, then why'd you make me look at you? Honestly, why are you wasting my time then? I don't know if you're that type of person. At times, I am very much that type of person. I have an agenda. I have a plan. And if you start talking to me or somebody starts talking to me and I deem this unnecessary, this is what comes in my head. Why are you wasting my time? I have better things to be doing at this moment. Maybe you're like me in that. But this guy's heart had to sink. But what was about to happen was about to change him forever, wasn't it? Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now this had to be unexpected. I don't know if anybody's tried this before with him. Probably not. But it had to be something new. Because it says, then Peter takes him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made, were made strong. And so he does in verse 8 what I think anybody would do. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. 
And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It's interesting that this guy all of a sudden forgot he was poor. All of a sudden, money doesn't mean anything. All of a sudden, he just wants to walk alongside with Peter and John, the two who helped him walk. And you have to imagine again the scene. I don't know what Peter and John are doing. They, they've picked him up. And now this guy's just like a kangaroo, I guess, jumping all around them, praising God, amazed at what just happened. Saying, just a second ago, I was asking these guys for some silver or gold. They looked at me, got my attention, then said, I don't have any of that. My heart sank within me. But then he grabbed me by the hand. And in the name of Jesus, he said to walk. And here I am. I'm walking. What a changed life for this man. No longer does he have to be a beggar. He can now go find work. No longer does he have to rely on his friends or his family to take him to this gate. He can walk there himself. His life has been completely changed for the good. So verse 11 says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this and why do you stare at us as though by our own power, our piety, we have made him walk. Now, we got to stop there. This is quite the dumb statement from Peter. Why are you guys looking at us? What do you mean, why am I looking at you? For 40-some years, however old this man was, I've walked past this guy. I've walked past him almost every single day. And every day, he's looked at me and said, do you have a coin to spare? I've seen the people, I've seen his friends carry him there, I've seen just how horrible his life is. But now I see him walking with you. And he's telling everybody here that you've done this. That you guys have changed his life. And you want to ask me the silly question of why do I wonder and stare? Of course we're staring. But Peter's taking an opportunity, isn't he? He wants to tell them something. And he wants to tell these people about the gospel and about salvation. So let's follow along, verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had, dece when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. 
and he shall be that and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. So you have Peter and John here, and they just did this miraculous thing through the name of Jesus and raised this lame man up, who's now no longer lame. People start to flock around because what has happened is causing quite a commotion in the temple. And Peter takes this opportunity because the people are wondering, how did this happen? Peter takes the opportunity to tell them how it happened. Hey, do you remember that guy, Jesus, who was here just a couple days ago? Remember the big hubbub that happened at Passover? The whole crucifixion. Remember how the whole town went black? Remember how the veil is torn? Remember, remember that guy? Remember how you killed him? Remember how you didn't believe him? Well, Peter says, let me give you a sermon. Let me introduce you to him because I don't think you understand who he is. He is the one that your Bibles, the Old Testament, has talked about all along. This Jesus is the one that you have been waiting for. The one that God has sent for you to have salvation. To have freedom. And he's talking to Jews here and he's saying, he was sent to you first. So that you would know. So that you would understand. But you killed him. You crucified him. But God raised him. God raised him from the dead. And so at this point, there's some commotion going on. The people maybe are asking questions. I don't know, but it, it's catching the attention of the people in the temple who are in charge. Because it says the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they come to them. And what's the problem? The problem isn't that, isn't that they healed a man or anything. It's you're starting to talk about the resurrection of the dead. And we have issue with this. And so they take Peter and John. And where we left off there, they take them into custody for teaching the good news, the gospel, and they throw him into jail. And the excuse is because it was already evening. So let's keep going. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And a number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. With Ananias the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So they want to know, how was this guy healed? They want to know too. What's going on here? So verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified. And now he's talking to the people who did it. You crucified them. These are the ones who did it. By whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Spencer had read in Psalm 118 about the cornerstone. When Peter's talking to these educated men who know the scriptures, it's not like Peter all of a sudden is just throwing out some building thing that they might recognize. No, he is using their scriptures to say to them, you men know what the cornerstone is. You men know that we have been waiting for the one that God would send who would save Israel, that would be the salvation of Israel. And Peter says, I stand before you today. This man here that has been healed is proof. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And you killed him. You denied him. You put him away. He was the salvation for our people. And you led him to slaughter. Even when Pilate said, I can't crucify this guy. Take some, just, just have him. You guys said, no, we want a true murderer. Kill him. The cornerstone. The way that Peter describes Jesus as being the cornerstone evokes within us, hopefully, the idea of solid ground, which goes back to the gospel that we talked about with the gospel shoes. But having those gospel shoes on that give you a steady, solid ground also gives you a confidence because of the salvation that is found in him. And so there's this great confidence that we see because of salvation in Jesus. I hope you see the picture in this. I hope that you grasp it as we go through it. This man who's crippled from birth, who can't do anything on his own, is you and I. Because of sin, the Bible tells us that we are without hope. Because of the sin in our life, we are told that there is no good thing that we can do. Everything we try to do that is good is filthy rags in the eyes of God. Why? Because of sin. Because sin has made us unholy. Because sin has made us unrighteous. And the sin that you bear, listen to me today, is your sin. Not mine, it's yours. And you are guilty of it. Every last one of them. We all are. We fall under this. And so we are lame just like this poor man from birth with no hope, just trying to squeak by, just trying to survive in this world. And I dare say for some of you, this is your testimony still at this very moment. You're doing your best to survive out there in this world. And many people might look at you and say, you seem to have some things together, but you know deep down you are an utter mess and when I read the story of this crippled man, you think, I can understand that. I feel like every day I barely get by. I, I'm struggling to survive. There's something in me that just isn't well. And I'm here to proclaim to you this morning, it's your sin. You aren't well. If you're lost in your sin, 
then there's no hope inside of you as an individual. It's not there. And this is the picture that we have in this, this man, the separation of sin from, from God and what it does to us. But yet, in this story, we see that Peter comes, and what does he do? He reaches out his hand to this man, and he says, look at me. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed and rise. And as Peter would say, as he goes down there at the end in Acts 4, verse 12, he tells us, doesn't he? He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's nothing else, nothing at all. There's, there's nothing in this earth that can save you. There's nothing within yourself that can save you. There's no person, there's no building, there's no religion. The only way that we can be saved, the only way that we can be set on the cornerstone that is being talked about here, the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins and our unrighteousness is through the blood of Jesus Christ, of trusting in him by faith, as we talked about last week, wholeheartedly believing in him, saying, you are mine, you are what I need. Peter even said it with this lame man. He said, by faith in his name, this man is healed. So what, what, the, what Peter's telling us there is this man trusted in Christ at that moment. He believed that Jesus was the one that Peter was saying, and it was because of that that he was then healed. You might be thinking of yourself this morning. I'm not like this lame man. I drive a Lincoln. I'm going on vacation next week. I have a job that's completely secure. And Pastor Tim, my family doesn't have to get me there. I've done all that on my own. My parents didn't help me. I went to school on my own. I got an education on my own. I went from the bottom of my company and I've worked my way up to the top. And I've done all of this on my own. And you're sitting here today, Pastor, and you're trying to tell me that I am a lame man I have to say, if that's your thought this morning, you are the lamest of man in here. You're the most lost of anybody else in here. I heard it said this week, I don't remember where, but it said one of the devil's best tactics is goodness. He loves to make us think, you're such a good man. There's a lot of good men who will never enter the pearly gates because they're relying on their goodness. Their cornerstone is not Jesus, but it's them. About what they have done, about what they are doing, about their good deeds, about the different clubs that they're a part of, the different charities that they give to, whatever it might be. And I know I keep saying men. I'm talking to you ladies as well. Some of you think your salvation is going to be because of your family and how good your pictures look and how tidy you are and the fact that you can take care of a family, but you also work. And you start to trust in these different things. This is no different than these Jews who looked at Jesus and said, there's no way you're it. Get out of my face. Many people still today, they look at Christ and they say, there's no way it's found in him. I am doing so much better than what he did. And they're taking their goodness all the way to the grave and sadly into hell as well. But Peter reminds us this morning 
There is salvation in no other name given. And you might ask the question, why would Paul say that salvation is our helmet? What is the role then of the Christian helmet? Because it says, take, take the helmet of salvation and put it on your head. And I think there's two things. Number one, it is our hope. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 8 through 11, Paul gives this same metaphor again, but he says it in a different way. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, he says, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So there, in putting on our helmet, there is this future reality of a hope that is secured and final. I've shared this with you many times. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not a wish. It's cemented. It is a hope that has not yet been realized, that we don't have, but we have it. And so we can say, our home is with God. You say, no, your home is in Monroe. Yes and yes. We know we are going home with him because he has promised it. And so we have this hope of salvation that covers our head, that covers our most vital part of our body. And this helmet of salvation over us reminds us, Tim, the Father, God, has adopted you into his family. You wear his helmet. You are his and nothing can take that away. No, no arrow, no dart, no gun, no anything can take that from you. And the helmet that I wear, the helmet that you wear as a Christian, is not, it's not the helmet that Tim has formed and made. It's the, it's the helmet that actually is taught for us in Isaiah 59, verse 17. Saying, the one who is to come to conquer sin for us wears the breastplate of righteousness and has on the helmet of salvation. This is my helmet, Jesus' helmet. The one that he conquered everything with. God the Father has given me this helmet and this is my hope. I am always his. It's the work that he has done. Not the work that I've done. It's not, the, it's not the castle that I have built. It's the kingdom that he has built. And that he has let me be a part of. That he has brought me into. This is where my hope lies. And now I feel like all through this sermon series I've been wanting to read Romans 8. And I have some. But this is why we can go to Romans 8. And we can actually say things that are true in Romans 8 to say, I believe that God has all good things planned for me. Why? Because he saved me. I believe that no, nobody can conquer me. Not death, not hell, no angels, no power, no principalities. Nothing can take away from me what God has given to me. This is what it says in Romans 8. And this is what we need to be reminded of every week. Our salvation is our hope. But there's another, there's another way to look at this that I think is true as well. What Paul is doing, he's showing us the importance of the Christian head, the knowledge. And where the hope is the future reality, this is a present reality. I can't say this enough, and you might get sick of me saying it. But it's important for you as a Christian and I say this to you this morning, if you're a non-Christian, it's very important for you to know what you believe. To know what you actually believe when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified. To know what that means. To understand what's going on here. 
This is what Peter did here. What did he do when he was talking to these people? He goes back to their scriptures and he starts talking about their history and their past and what God has done. And he's using it through scripture because they knew it. And he wants them to know. He doesn't say, I'll just put your faith in this guy. It'll be good. No, know who he is. Know what he has done. Know what he stands for. And the Bible says this over and over and over again, that the Christian faith is one of thinking and it's one of reason. John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. This is how John, this isn't the last book, but he's getting to the end here. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John said, this is why I wrote the gospel, so that you may know him, so that you may know who he is. I've wrote this down so that you can actually know him. He's not just some thought in your mind. He's not just some mystical thing. This is a real person who came and died for your sins. And by the way, he's also the son of the living God. He wants us to know this. The gospel of John isn't alone in this. Luke, the detail that he puts in his gospel and in Acts. Why does he do this? So we can know it. Paul goes to Ephesus there, which, which is this book is from, in Acts. And how does he talk to them? He convinces them of the truth of the scriptures. He reasons with them. He shares with them. So when we know the promises of God, when we know why we trust in this God, we have confidence we are safe and secure in him. We have confidence in this message. And so nothing that Satan does can stop me. Why? Because I'm in him and he is in me. And I know his promises and I know they are real and I know they are true. And nothing Satan can do can stop that. Our hope then isn't in the things of this world or even in its life. But our hope is in the life of Jesus, which is an everlasting life. This is one thing that I think many Christians today lack. And I think we see it in the degradation of church life. Too many Christians do not have a Christian mindset. And therefore, confidence is so easily shaken. You know the question, why is it that you struggle to tell people about Jesus? Many of you might even say, I'm afraid they're going to ask me a question I don't know. Whose fault's that? It's your fault. The answers are here. We can know it. Some of you men that I'm looking at, you can, you can describe to me exactly how an engine works in every single one and every single car they were ever in. You just get the smell of oil and you're like, that was in a Chevy 37, blah, blah, blah. And I'm very impressed by that. But if you then tell me, but Pastor Tim, I can't understand all that stuff about the Bible. You're lying. Satan has deceived you. He has tricked you. We need to know the word of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, two of my favorite verses. Say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Knowing God's word, knowing the truths of it, actually studying it and being prepared in it will increase your confidence more and more and more in this world beyond any other thing that you think might give you confidence. You have the ability then to stand ready. At this moment in my life, I'm 39 years old. I'm almost dead, 40. When you hit 40, you die, is what I'm told. I'm getting there. But I really can stand before you, and I told you at the very beginning of this sermon, I am no one of great renown. But there are some things that God has granted me and I'm very thankful for, and one of them is he has put within me a fire to know him better. And while it is sometimes very difficult to do that, while I'm very thankful for the job that I have because it forces me to study honestly, I have found in my life that God has done just what I've been saying for me many, many times. Where I've stood in the face of things and allegations or whatever it might be that this world could throw at me. But I even wonder, I think, this does not seem to be knocking me down. But it does seem to be knocking others down. What's the difference? And it's not that I'm so strong. It's not that I'm so great. But what I think it is, is God has allowed me to mature in his word and to know his word. And I think I've seen this truth play out. That Tim, as you know me more, as you put on the helmet of salvation and understand what that means, it's going to be harder and harder for Satan to knock you over. Because you know the truth. And so every little thing that the news wants to say, or every little bad thing that might come into my life of sickness or death or illness or whatever it might be. You don't find yourself tossed back and forth like in the ocean of waves over and over and over again. Why? Because the Bible is true and real. And for those who are saved and know him and have a desire to know him more, what you find is God calms those storms with his word. It's still difficult. There's still pain, there's still suffering, and in fact, the Bible tells us God uses suffering for us to know him better and more. So I'm not saying that. You don't feel that. You do feel that. But you can look at your loved one who's passed away in that casket, and you can say, I know why all this has happened. I know the answer to this problem. I know the solution that has been given to overcome death, hell, and the grave. I'm very thankful that Jesus has done that for me. It's on him alone. That's what Peter says. Salvation is found in no other place but in the name of Jesus. This morning, I hope that that's you. I hope that you're not a Christian who finds yourself tossed to and fro. Who finds that when Satan attacks you, it seems to work at all times. I'm not saying you're sinless, but I'm saying you have a confidence in Jesus and who he is. I find myself more and more around people in this world who think the world is crumbling. And they try to tell me that there's no doubt Jesus is coming this year. And to me, it actually shows a little part of a lack of confidence in them of who Jesus is. 
I'm not surprised by the way this world is going. I'm not surprised the things that the news is going to throw at me or that professional athletes might say to me. Or even if you're frustrated with the schools of what the schools might say, none of that surprises me. Why? Salvation is not of them. Salvation is found in Jesus. And those who do not have Jesus rebel against him. They don't love him. They turn from him and they go astray from him. And in fact, most often they want others to do the same. And so that is what we're facing. Does it shock you? Do you stand in all of that? Has it made you feel like your cornerstone is slipping? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And a reminder is for those of us who have the helmet of salvation, though the world will press at you, though the world will push at you, remember this, they will never ever gain one inch of the church. Because Jesus declared to Peter, what did he say to him? The gates of hell itself will not prevail against you. That's your promise, church. That's our promise. Why? Because of the salvation that has been given to us through the blood of our Savior, Jesus. Not because of Tim, not because of you, not because of your parents, your grandparents, whatever it might be because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Church family, this is why we gather here each Sunday morning, and that's why I started the way I did. You need to be reminded of this often, and so do I. Because though I stand right here now very boldly saying these things, the fact is tomorrow morning when the Today Show pops on in my home, I'm going to think, oh my gosh, what is happening? And I'll need to be in God's word again to be reminded again. And again, and again, and again. And God has given us each other to remind us of these things. And so I hope today that your salvation is found in the name of Christ and nothing else. Not in the business you started. Not in the great family that you have. Not even in how smart you think you are, or how educated you think you are. But I hope that this morning you can say with beyond a shadow of a doubt, Pastor, what you've been teaching about in this armor, I, I believe in that. I believe in the gospel message, and I believe that by faith I put my trust fully in his name, the name of Jesus, where salvation is found. I hope that's your testimony this morning. If it's not, I hope you'll respond like those men after Peter healed that lame guy, and he said that he, he went and he goes shares the gospel with them, and it's interesting, he didn't get to do an altar call or anything. Why? He got thrown in jail. But yet the Holy Spirit still did what? Saved a bunch of men. It said upwards now there's 5,000. I hope that happens in your life this morning. If you've never trusted in Christ, I hope that you'll put your faith in him and see his loving kindness that he's given to you by sacrificing himself on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. I thank you for salvation that is found in no other name than in the name of Jesus. God, I pray that those listening this morning, those who are here, would hear that. God, I pray for that person here this morning. I'm sure there's many who have not put their faith solely in Jesus. 
God, I pray that you would convict them by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning and you would show them the truth, that they would give up fighting and toiling on their own, which they're never going to attain anything by doing that, but that they would rest in your great care. God, I pray for that Christian here this morning who they know that they're yours. They trust in you, but God, maybe their zeal and passion has gone and they've they find themselves maybe being tossed back and forth a little bit, starting to doubt, starting to wonder. God, I pray that you would drive them to your word, to study your word, to know your word. God, too many times I hear from Christians who try to find alternative routes. They think, well, maybe I can just listen to this radio broadcast, or maybe I can just read this other book or do that. God, I pray that you would drive them to your scriptures. They would study it, that they would know it, that you would give them a passion for you. Because God, I know that's a gift from you as well. So I pray that you would do that for us even as a church body. Help us to never stray from the main things of your word, the truth of your word, those things that we need to be reminded of each week together. Because God, without those things, we will just be led astray in this world and be confused. Help us to have the mindset that you would want us to have a mindset focused on your word, a mindset focused on Jesus, who he is and what he's done. God, we love you this morning. As we sing this last song, help us to respond to your word how we should. But we pray that you'd get glory in all of it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.